Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, Grand Rounds. Uh, we've had uh, just a couple of snow-related technical difficulties. I, I'm hoping that everyone is safe. Uh, you have dug out of this uh, largest snowstorm of the season. And uh, I, I figured I would uh, I would do it uh, not live in the studio, but here from uh, my Swiss chalet. And I'm just kidding. This is a um, you know, just a, a background. So, but, but anyways, welcome to Grand Rounds. We have a, an outstanding presentation today from our uh, leader in emergency medicine, uh, Dr. Michelle McKee, uh, who uh, in about a couple of weeks will be uh, uh, celebrating her first anniversary at Connecticut Children's. And uh, she landed with us um, a week before this whole pandemic emergency preparedness started. And, and, and to me, it was really a godsend in the sense that, you know, she's an engineer by training. Dr. Brancato will tell you her, her full uh, pedigree and life history and, and introduce her, but it's just been a, a, just a remarkable individual to have with us in this difficult time. And to introduce her, we have uh, John Brancato. John is a, is a dear friend and a colleague uh, who uh, really has been at the leadership level uh, in at Connecticut Children's in so many roles, and he does it with with kindness, with determination and excellence. Uh, and I'm enormously grateful for, to John with John for everything that he has done over the years, including serving as interim chief of the Division of Emergency Medicine. So I uh, I, I welcome you all to the Grand Rounds. Hopefully everyone is safe, that you dug out, and I'm gonna ask John to go on rounds. Good morning and thank you. Thank you, Juan, and good morning, everyone. I am very pleased to introduce Dr. Michelle McKee. Um, having earned both bachelor's and master's degrees in biomedical engineering, uh, Dr. McKee received her medical degree from Temple University in Philadelphia. She did an internship at Boston City Hospital, which is now Boston Medical Center, and then served for three years as a Lieutenant and General Medical Officer in the United States Navy. She completed her pediatrics residency at Johns Hopkins and a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine at what is now Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. Prior to coming to Hartford, Dr. McKee spent eight years at Comer Children's Hospital at the University of Chicago, the last five as medical director of pediatric emergency medicine. During that stretch, she also spent more than eight years, six, excuse me, six years as medical director of emergency preparedness for the University of Chicago Medical Center. She chaired the Illinois Emergency Medical Services for Children Pediatric Preparedness Workgroup, which authored numerous guidelines on preparedness specific to children as well as on the care of children during disasters. Dr. McKee joined the Division of Emergency Medicine here at Connecticut Children's almost a year ago, as Juan said, uh, bringing her expertise in disaster preparedness just as the COVID pandemic was starting to hit the U.S. Though it has been a challenging year to say the least, she implemented the emergency department's COVID plan, which is continually refined as the nature of the pandemic has changed and helped focus the hospital's response to the ongoing pediatric mental and behavioral health crisis. This morning, she'll speak on connecting disaster readiness principles to daily patient care. Welcome, Dr. McKee. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, thank you so much, John and Juan, for a wonderful introduction. I want to thank all of my colleagues in emergency medicine uh, for this wonderful year. It's been a heck of a role, and I'm looking forward to many more years to come. And across the institution, it's been a wonderful privilege to get to work with so many people across so many endeavors. So as you know, my title is called Connecting Disaster Readiness Principles to Daily Patient Care. But my goal is to bring disaster readiness to all of us and see how we can participate in that goal as an institution. If you, next slide. I have no disclosures. Next slide. The three principles that I'm gonna outline have to do with identifying select readiness principles, which can be used at home in a primary care setting and in an institutional setting. Describe how these principles connect across a continuum and finally demonstrate how key foundational components can support future endeavors. Next slide. As we go through these slides, I'm gonna ask each of you to think about this framework. The first component is, is there a resource that I can use to help myself, my family, my patients, 
and in my work environment. And then later on the top, we'll switch gears a little bit and we'll move over to what are the ways a simple photograph can help a patient and a family? Next slide. I did have the great honor of working with many talented people in Illinois at the Department of Public Health and EMS for Children. We developed a guideline, the last version out just a couple of years ago. It's pediatric disaster preparedness for hospitals. And I'll include all the references later if anyone wants the link. But what that does is it goes through all of the different things you might consider when you're trying to prepare your institution or your medical center for a disaster or other things, there's interruptions in work, like a snowstorm that we just had. You could lose power for any reason. It could be a natural disaster. It could be terrorist disaster. It doesn't really matter what the hazard is. The goal is to be able to be pre prepared for all of these hazards. And the guideline steps through what things you might want to have in place. It does include a checklist that if you as an institution were looking to see, am I up to snuff? Do I have everything in place that I would like to go through? you can refer to a checklist that's in one of the appendix. Next slide. I'm gonna to touch on just a few things that are covered in the table of contents. Certainly on the right of your slide, most of that is too small to read, but a few key components have to do with family preparedness, which we will go into in a little more detail, an emergency information form, what it includes and how it's applied, what is incident command? So many people in a hospital setting know what an incident command structure is, but if they haven't been activated or led an incident command, they might not know some of the details and how it functions. Surge is also a very popular topic that we have to attend to. We certainly have gone into surge mode, including last week from the emergency department for behavioral health. And finally, one area that is near and dear to my heart, I'm gonna get into quite a bit more detail on reunification and patient identification and how as a system that can function overall, both in the home, in the healthcare setting and at an institutional level. Next slide. There are five core mission principles that are outlined by the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And I'm gonna to touch on these briefly so that it gives you context for what we're thinking about. Prevention, I think we all have a good understanding of what that definition might be. How do we prepare? And the next component is protection, not just how do we prepare, but what do we actually put into place? Mitigation is when you're doing basically short PDSA cycles, plan, do, study, act. Do I have a plan in place that's working? Did I test that plan? Do I need to refine that plan? And am I ready for what's coming forward, regardless of what it is? The next component has to do with response. Do we perform well? Do we have areas that need to be improved upon? Is there anything else I can think of to bring to the table to make our response on the next round more effective? And finally, recovery. The event is over. The institution is looking at how do we go on to next steps, lessons learned, and then that cycles back to prevention. Next slide. All of these areas overlap. FEMA knows that if you look at the planning, it goes across all five major core principles. Public information and warning is another core principle. I know that when my daughter in Washington, D.C. was there on January 6th, she got public information and a warning that she hadn't signed up for. Luckily, she stayed inside. Operational coordination, how does that go across all spans? And then it starts to break down to much finer detail, both for infrastructure, community resilience, and how do we share our information effectively and yet protect our patients' private rights. Next slide. And I spoke about wanting to talk to all of this across a continuum. On the far left, you'll see the patient in the center, a medical home, and on the right, a regional hospital. We really want to look at this as one part feeds into the next. It's interplay between all of these entities. How do they connect and how can we help them connect? Next slide. The first area we're going to delve into is patients and family readiness. Next slide. We have patients who have special health care needs or just ongoing health care needs. Perhaps they need care in the home, perhaps they need care that's partly in home and partly in an institutional setting. But certainly when we're caring for our patients, we're making sure that all of their needs are met, both in the home and when they leave their home. Do any of our patients have any advanced 
or legal directives that are into play? And does the family have any plans for emergencies? Next slide. What do I mean about family plans for emergencies? Ready.gov is a wonderful resource that looks at kits and how we can help our families. These are guides that you can refer families to. I've done this with my own family. And there are several components. On the left of the slide, you'll see something that's one of the games they have. It's Disaster Master Game. It's trying to help children become desensitized to an event when it occurs. Much like everybody else, having the information ahead of time helps everybody be able to respond in a calm, cool, and collected manner. So for children, you know as well as I do that if we make it a game, they're able to absorb the information. And if you drill with them and practice and make it a family event, it makes it that much more familiar to them so that when you need them to function that way and execute the plan with you, they're able to do so because you've had the time to practice. There's another component on the ready.coat kids games area about building a kit and how to have your family engage in the plan. What do you want to put into the plan? How do you personalize it for your own family, for your specific health care needs? Do you make it a hunt game where you have family members search for the components that build an emergency kit and who can find the most? So make it fun, make it accessible. Next slide. There are other ways to get into more detail. Those last components were really how to have the children desensitized, the family desensitized, and be ready for an incident. But how do we help them plan? And what information do we want them to have at their fingertips that'll help us take better care of them? Next slide. Ready.gov also has a plan, and, and these links would work if you were to get my slide deck. So how will I receive emergency alerts and warnings? We spoke a little bit about that. What is my shelter plan? What is my evacuation route? We'll touch on those for a few moments. When my daughter was young, about sixth grade, I had gone into her classroom and we did the games. And you know, these kids, they're ready to play. They're ready to compete. They wanna learn all about it and see what they can do. So we took that lesson home and we started talking about, well, if we had to meet somewhere in our neighborhood, where would we be? She's 11 at the time, I let her pick. She chose a Dunkin' Donuts not too far from where we lived in downtown Chicago. I thought that was a good plan. But I asked her, why? Why do you want to go to Dunkin' Donuts? And her thought process at the time was, well, there'd be food and the police are always there. I couldn't argue that point. I think that's true. I don't know what the Dunkin' Donuts was, but I would consider great food, but she was right. There was food. And yes, the police were often there. What is the evacuation route? We practiced. If we couldn't go out the front door of our walk-up, we had to go out the back door. Could we still get to the same location? Did you know how to get around with or without a map? Certainly when we all have cell phones, we become highly dependent on that mapping function, but actually helping, helping people practice without a mapping function and using a paper map could be a skill to learn. What is my family and communication plan? We'll get into that with a little more detail. Do I need to update my emergency preparedness kit? We'll cover what's in a kit. It's got to be age appropriate. It's also got to include medications, refills, and do any of your medications need to have any type of refrigeration? So do you need an ice pack? And then of course, the Center for Disease Control updates the emergency plans and has started to take things into account. Certainly with the COVID-19 pandemic, when children over two should have a mask, we have to carry our disinfectants and that we're going to double check our sheltering plan because we certainly want the physical spacing to be appropriate were we to go to a public setting. Next slide. So just to remind, collect, share, and practice. Ready.gov has many things to choose from. And there are other agencies that have wonderful plans that you could select from as well. I'm just choosing to highlight a few that I'm most familiar with and have shared in the past. If you look at the bottom of this slide, one of the things it says is text is best. If you're using a mobile phone, a text message may get through when a phone call would not. This is because of the bandwidth of voice versus texting and the data bytes that it takes to get that message across. 
So texting is important for that reason. It does help with communication. It also helps because if something happens that say you lose your cell phone connectivity, your text message will probably try to resend itself when you reconnect to a better signal. So that's another good way to make sure that your communications stay in place. And of course, when we're all very highly dependent on our electronics, you wanna make sure that you've got a way to keep it charged, either with a mobile charger or being able to plug in at the nearest setting. Next slide. This is a sample of a family communication plan. It contains basic data. Again, this can be downloaded from the internet. It'll share what your family might set up for a contact information, meaning parents, guardians, extended family members, a meeting place both in your neighborhood and regionally if you were to have to evacuate your immediate neighborhood. Family information, we recommend that it would include date of birth, social security number, what are your medical contacts for your primary care physician, for your subspecialist, or your dentist. And lastly, insurance, if you have it, to include in that data stream as well. Next slide. We're gonna switch next to readiness at the medical home. Next slide. So again, keep thinking this in terms of the continuum. When we were talking about patient and family readiness in the last several slides, we as medical providers in a medical home, even in a regional hospital, can help provide families with these tools to help them feel connected and help their families feel ready. But as a medical home, when I function independently, what do I need to do to keep my practice safe, functional, and open for business when these disasters occur? Next slide. This table goes over some of the things that I have considered I would imagine that my colleagues in primary care could probably add several things to those list, but I wanted to emphasize that so many of the things in this table already speak to disaster readiness principles. So if you have a waiting room that separates ill from well children, you've done some triage already. If you've established roles for insight to resuscitation, you've also done some planning and preparation. For emergent versus urgent referrals for your patients to go out to see such specialists, the timing of which is also very important. You've also done some mitigation for your family. And then of course, our CIN has participation with our regional facility here at Connecticut Children's through Epic Access. How has the pandemic affected your practice? Certainly we have seen telehealth come into vogue and be more widely used than it had been in the past. I do think that that is a wonderful medium for us to connect with our patients. I think families have enjoyed it and it's been very useful when we have so many limitations on being able to have clinics open and available. And I, I do start to wonder just in the back of my mind, how is that gonna play downstream when we think about antibiotic stewardship? PPE type and supplies, we know those restrictions were making it really hard for practitioners to get their hands on those supplies. And certainly as the supplies across the country have become more available, keeping that in your office has become easier. Were you able to get vaccinated for COVID-19? Have you been able to help your patients and their families get connections to get COVID-19? Who should be in the first tier? Who should be in the second tier? And I don't think it would be a talk about a pandemic if we didn't also discuss mental health and resiliency, both for ourselves and for our colleagues in keeping an eye on one another. When I look at how primary care plays into disaster preparedness and what you need to do to have your office ready, do you have a communication in place when your facility is not open, not operational, can the families call in and reach a pre-recorded line with updated information? Do you have backup for your medical and office systems? And that might include something simplistic like generator power for temperature sensitive supplies. Next slide. Scott Needle is a pediatrician who was affected by Hurricane Katrina back in August of 2005. He was working as a primary care physician in Missouri. His practice was profoundly affected. He had to evacuate as did his family. And then he was in a quandary where he didn't feel 
that he was adequately prepared at that time on how to advise his patients and families and get them the care that they need. So shortly afterwards, this article is in 2008, he wrote this pediatric private practice after Hurricane Katrina, a proposal for recovery, recognizing how he was impacted, how his community was impacted, and ways that he saw that we could improve going forward. Next slide. He also wrote this wonderful disaster plan for pediatricians, and I encourage anyone with their single practices or freestanding offices to take a look at it. He took his last article a step further, not just what do I need to think about, but how can I achieve it? So this is another, another wonderful guide for stepping through how to be prepared, what things you might wanna think about, develop your own checklist for your practice and make sure going forward that you are able to sustain what you need to do for your patients and families. Next slide. The AAP has also been involved in the National Resource Center for Patient and Family-Centered Medical Homes. How you can form a medical home, assess your practice, and understand quality improvement for your practice. And again, this link will be available. It covers many of the same entities that Dr. Scott Needle had in his guide. It does take it a step further and provides linkages to additional resources and references for your convenience. Next slide. Next, we're going to look at readiness at the regional hospital. And here we are, Connecticut Children's, ready to serve and really have that interflow between all of our patients, families, our CN network, and other medical homes in the community as well. Next slide. I'm going to look on just a few select topics because I really think that honing it down to things that we are concerned about it's challenging. I could spend certainly an, a full hour on many topics that are associated with disaster preparedness and how our institution could prepare. The things that most commonly come into play are family preparedness, which we've already touched on, the emergency information form. Now we're going to look at that form. It's a little different. It's not the patient form. It's not the family form. It's the form that has data that we as providers would want to see from a regional perspective. How does incident command operate or just barely touch on what is incident command and what are the goals of incident command? Surge is for us to be able to handle large volumes of patients. And then again, we're going to touch more in detail on reunification and patient identification. Next slide. There's a policy statement put out several years ago from the AAP that emergency information forms were for children in general, but more specifically, they started looking at children with special health care needs, and it can also be called functional access needs. One of the things I really liked about this document is in addition to all the basic demographics, so many of the components do overlap with that family form we looked at a little bit, but I've also looked at what was the child's clinical baseline, things like baseline vital signs, baseline physical findings, immunologic competency, and synopsis of clinical status. Those are all very important. When we have an electronic patient record, my brain starts to think about how do we take these key components and put it into a neat, compact piece of data that we have to help care for our patients when they arrive, or how to help get that information to patients should they need to present to an alternative care location. Next slide. What is incident command? It's a framework, it's a structure, and it's a management protocol. And what it's meant to do is provide the same framework regardless of where it's deployed. It could be in the hospital, it could be in the field, it could be on a national level, but the idea is that we wanna respond cohesively to an all hazard event. The core objectives include reducing miscommunication, meaning that I share the right information at the right time with the proper intended audience. The next one can get a little more interesting, appropriate redundancy. What does that mean? Why do I need any redundancy? If I'm trying to reduce waste in so many functions, why would I want appropriate redundancy? The most clear example I can think of is when we have communication. Most of us would be texting and or using the Volt system that we have here at Connecticut Children's. It's reliable as long as your signal is intact and your electronic is charged. 
If for some reason that communication fails, what are we gonna do? We'll have a runner. We might have to revert to pen and paper. That is called a redundancy and it's appropriate because we have to have a backup system for key components of an incident command structure. Next slide. This slide looks at what is an incident command? It is an organizational chart where there is a command staff with general staff branches and divisions. It's meant to be flexible to suit any given incident. So incident command, our EMTs, Juan, Chris, Lori, Gil, Jim, et cetera, they're gonna function up at that level. They're gonna guide our institution on how to function and what to do. And we report up through that chain. Next slide. But I as a clinician, where would I, oops, there we go. But I as a clinician, where would I fit in? Most of us that are clinically practicing, physicians or APPs will be absorbed into the operations sections. That's where we're delivering care. It doesn't mean that the other sections aren't important, but for clinical people, operations, planning and sections, some clinicians might be absorbed into that. It might depend on what their role is. And then logistics, how we function overall, and of course, finance and administration, and that becomes very important as we look at it. One thing I left off this slide that I really want to touch on has to do with communication. Their communication within our institution is certainly important, but communication with our external partners and patients and families is also very important. One area that needs to be emphasized to be introduced very early into our planning scenarios is how do we share that communication with our external partners? What do we set up in place? It's not just about linkages to the media and how it gets reported. That has to do with families calling in for information. They're trying to find their child and our ability to help guide them to the right location. So communications is one of our paramount functions. Next slide. Identification and reunification. Why is this important? We expect that most of the time our children if they are not in school or any type of school-related trip. And yes, that will come back eventually when we get through this pandemic. But when our children aren't with us, how do we know that they're gonna be cared for? If they're developing immature and they can't yet recite enough information about their name or who their parents are or a phone number, we have to make decisions too for our patients and families that are we going to have reunification be at a relocation area such as the hospital or a staging area, perhaps the city of Hartford would open the general halls or we ha have we been advised to shelter in place and reunification gets delayed until a point where it's safe for them to come to a joint meeting location. What is the transportation and communication between these facilities and with parents and families on an ongoing basis? And when we look at picture boards, so if we have children that present that are either developmentally unable or immature to share that data with us. How are we going to get their information out? How are we gonna help them get reunified with their parents and caregivers? We need to be sure that our system is HIPAA compliant so that we protect their privacy, but at the same time, we have to get just enough information out to have reunification be successful. And does it withstand the test of time? That becomes very important. Hurricane Katrina had just under 5,100 children that were displaced from their parents or guardians. The last child was reunited with their family six months after the event occurred. Most of us are thinking, how is that possible? How is it that a child wasn't reunited for six months? We don't know the details of how that transpired, but when I think about the developmental progression of especially young children, Suppose that child had been six months of age and I have a photograph of what they look at at six months of age. Do I think I'm gonna have the skills and ability to project what they might look like at 12 months? And have I taken pictures along the way? And have I shared that information with the parents to be able to reunite them as quickly as possible? Next slide. There are other agencies that have plans in place or ways that we can advise them to have plans in place. It could be child care settings, whether it's child care in a home or in a public setting. And Illinois EMSC, which is currently branded under Blurry Children, has a guide that we can share with those institutions. Schools also have plans. A few years ago, I worked with a group at a local museum. And as you can just imagine, that museum got a lot 
of children on a daily basis, upward of 2,000 children per day when the schools were in session and visiting their location. So the schools had a plan and the museum had a plan and we worked on how did those two, two plans intersect and how did we help the school get information back to their parents and, and guardians. There are also group living structures that fall into different categories and would also need it and foster care situations. So we really wanna to touch on how does every place where a child might be that needs assistance or guidance, how do we help those agencies be ready? Next slide. In the state of Illinois, the Department of Public Health uses the Pediatric and Neonatal Surge Annex. And within that annex, there is a plethora of information on patient identification and how to track them. So not just how do we identify them once we're at our facility, but what if for some reason they got moved from the field to our location? What if we had to do a secondary relocation? Not that we would want to do that, but if it happens, how does that occur? And what information do we have? So this was meant to be a unified system of reporting data so that we all had the same data throughout the state. We adopt that into our institutional electronic patient record so that we as care providers could fill all of that in. And again, a nice concise piece of data for us to send with the patient or keep with the patient, both paper copy and electronic copy. The first part of it covers just demographics, what the incident was, as much information as we have about the patient, if we can have their first and last name, phone number, address. But again, we're going to have minors that may not be able to share that information. You notice on the bottom right, it says presented with patient, um, yes or no, meaning the parents or the guardians. And that'll help cue our system on whether or not we have to invoke different tracking mechanisms and reunification procedures. If they know their date of birth, are we estimating what their year is and gender? Next slide. The center part of this forum speaks to being able to list descriptors, race or ethnicity, what language do they speak, what items was the child wearing when they were found, which is important. Describe where they were found as close to possible if you can give a street address. And then again, how did they get to us and what information can we provide from EMS, law enforcement, or did they self-present? Next slide. The next part looks at physical characteristics of the child, skin color, hair color, eye color, height and weight, other markings such as birthmarks, moles, missing teeth, braces. And then we see that big box right there, attached photo here. At the time that this was developed, our electronic patient record did not have the capability of introducing a photograph into the patient's record. It takes quite a bit of data to put that in and the storage at the time was overwhelming for the system. Mm -hmm. We're getting there and we're gonna to touch on that in a few minutes. But our plan was that we had Polaroid cameras that printed a photograph and that that would get stapled to the child's record. So not ideal, but at the time, the best solution. Next slide. It also looks at tracking. And again, that's to follow which facility had they been at, arrival, arrival date, departure date, and if you have an ID band to help track them through the systems, being careful not to remove a previous one, but to just keep adding to it so we have as much linear data as possible. Next slide. On the back of the page, I won't get into as much detail. It talks about the child's medical history. What treatment did we render for them at our institution? And then for accompanied and unaccompanied minors, the disposition. There's a lot more detail that can be put into what are we going to look at to properly identify the parent or guardian when they present to us. How, do we, how can we be sure that we are releasing the child to the proper person? Next slide. So early in this talk, I mentioned to you that I was asking for you to keep a framework in mind. We went through a lot of resources that are geared toward helping families caregivers, whether it's a primary care institution that's freestanding or any other environment or a regional hospital like Connecticut Children's. Next, we're going to dove over, dovetail over into what are the ways a simple photograph can help a patient and a family? Next slide. So if we look at this young lady in the slide, she's smiling. She's making eye contact. 
She looks happy to me. Can this photograph induce a positive outcome? So what are the ways that we as an institution might be able to harness the power of a photograph that might help us with identification, reunification, but could they also help us in other ways? And this is where I'm asking us as an institution to give me feedback. Let me know, how does it apply to your everyday work stream? Is it something simplistic, like when the patient is being checked in, that when you're asking them for the photograph and the parents agree to it because it's something that we use for identification, we don't need a separate consent because it's something that's used just for identification. But doesn't it induce some type of positive atmosphere and mood because they're smiling and they're having their photograph entered into their chart with us? Does it help us establish a personal connection? Are we able to then look at that photograph in the storyboard or the header board on the electronic patient record? We have already been able to connect a name with a face. We, maybe we feel more comfortable using their name when we walk into the room. Maybe it's something that we feel more comfortable making eye contact. It rapidly identifies which is our patient when we walk into the room. I myself, as well as many of us have walked into a room, there might be two children who are very similar in size and they don't have to be twins or multiple gestations. But you have to sit and wonder, which one is my patient? I'm looking for that ID band. Well, if I had a photograph, that might help me. We might have surgical subs that say, photographs that are pre-existing in the medical record can be used for other reasons. Is it something that can be used going forward when they have to do any procedures for correction and dis disfiguring injuries? Or is it something that, if we look at that article at the bottom, what did that smile do? There was a study back, and this is in the two, published in 2002. And I won't get into a lot of the details, but basically looking at what does it do for the patient and what does smiling actually do? Does it release dopamine and make the patient feel happier? It might. Next slide. We're gonna look a little bit at what two applications we have access to at this current time to help put a patient photograph into the electronic patient record, excuse me. So the one on the left is Haiku and the one on the right is Rover. One part I wanna mention about Rover and Sarah Visca was sharing with me that when Rover was put into play, why? The institution had to start separating where patients were, where we cared for them when the pandemic hit us. And we didn't necessarily have all the hardware for the computers to make that occur. Rover helped with that functionality. So that at this point in time, primarily nursing staff is able to chart at the bedside so they don't need a computer on wheels or a workstation on wheels to be able to chart. So it freed us up from the necessity of having to get additional hardware by still, but still be able to provide the right amount of detail and documentation, and including things like scanning the charts, um, you know, the child's ID band for medication. I will note that the photograph that can be put into the patient's charts through Rover is not used as one of the two forms of necessary identification to make sure it's the right patient, the right medication, the right procedure, et cetera, but it's just a way to augment that procedure. And then the one on the left, Epic Haiku, uh, it also comes titled as Limerick when you look for it in the App Store to put it onto your personal electronic device. We use Haiku pretty frequently in the emergency department. There's a couple of different ways we can use Haiku. Next slide. If I were to go into Haiku and open a patient's chart, if I wanted to put a photograph into the chart, I'm gonna to wanna to make a decision whether or not it's a piece of clinical detail that I would wanna put it into a media tab, or is it patient identification that I wanna put a photograph into that header bar where you see the outline of the head, neck, and shoulders on this slide. So the way to do that is to find the patient's record, open it, and at the header bar, you're gonna tap on that camera icon. Next slide. Two options will appear. The first one on the top is capturing clinical media, we know what that is, and capturing the ID photo. So say I chose the one that I wanna put the patient's photograph into the header bar. Next slide. I select that capture ID photo. It opens the camera on my phone. Yes, that's one of my dogs um, that I didn't want to have to put a person in and get extra consent. But in any case, it shows an outline, head, neck, and it shows how to zoom in, how close you need to be so that you can accurately put that patient's photograph into the header bar. Next slide. 
there's some strategies that I want to touch on. While these are posed as questions, they really bring a lot of thought to mind when I think globally about disaster preparedness and how it impacts our day-to-day life. It's a great photograph that we have here. Many different children. I believe they're on a school trip. They chose to all wear the same shirt. Really helps the people that are chaperoning them and guiding them identify who's in their group. But one question that I have is, does group recognition aid or hinder identification? It does aid in many ways. Again, just routine chauffeuring and chaperoning patients, excuse me, children through an event. But how might it hinder identification? I might now have 25 children who have presented to my medical facility in the same outfit, the same shirt, the same uniform. Does having a photograph of a well child impact identification and reunification? There was a study that was done by Serena Chung and colleagues out of Boston a few years ago, and they approached people who provided care both in the field and at institutions. And they said, what's your perception on having a photograph of a well child versus an ill child or a child that suffered any type of traumatic injury that might make them look different? And then looking at, do we need to do any type of manipulation of photographs when the child is very ill appearing or deceased? How do you perceive it would parents looking at this? Most of us could identify our children when they're well and happy, when they have a disfigured injury, just get more challenged. And then they started to consider the emotional impact on the parents to continue to function should they need to look at a photograph where their child was disfigured or deceased. There are ways that national agencies can try to help make those photographs more visually acceptable to parents should they need to identify. One of the best agencies for this is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They have what's called forensic photography where they can do things such as just improve the photographs to ease it for the parents. And that gets into my next question. I'll tie it together. Is more than one photograph helpful in predictive modeling for aging? The National Center for Missing and Exploiting Children has an infant induction program. And certainly while most parents are going to be able to provide a photograph of their infant, it doesn't mean they have another way to estimate what their child is going to look like in six months, 12 months, 18 months. Is it someone that was abducted even when they were in their pre-adolescent phase and we need to relocate them now that they're teenagers? So having more than one photograph to be able to feed into that system to help them, help us, and relocate those families and children. Do parents trust certain modes of communication over others? That is one critical feature that becomes very important. Even if we are to put their child's photograph into the electronic patient record. So I've identified a few ways that I think it would be helpful I'm sure people in this audience could give me other ways that they would find it helpful. And again, I do want to hear that. But how do parents feel about that? And what do they look at? So Rachel Turney uh, out of St. Louis and Sarita Chung and others out of Boston looked at how do parents perceive what we're doing with this information? Is it something that they think is important to have reunification with children? They got just over 360 respondents to tell them how they felt about the child's information. They wanted it to be helpful for unification. Less than 1% of that population that was responding had actually been out of touch with their child, whether it was due to a disaster or in a public setting, say a shopping mall. Um, But how did they feel about it? They were more likely to trust entities such as a hospital as opposed to other entities such as a university and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is, as a national level agency, something that they would trust. So when we look at how would we put, put, possibly rather put this into play for our institution, that's a little bit of a marketing idea, right? We have to be able to make the parents feel comfortable. We want them to feel comfortable. We're going to protect their information in every way that we need to uphold HIPAA, but we also want to help get the process through. So if we were to and to market it with hospital branding over university branding, that would help the parents feel more comfortable. How do the parents perceive agencies entrusted with their personal information? 
So in addition to identifying what type of agency they felt most comfortable sharing their information with, they also voiced some secondary concerns. Would their child's data stay in the system permanently and be used for another reason? Was it actually a mechanism that we would potentially turn that their child's information over to something like Child Protective Services? So there's a healthy amount of distrust and we'd have to combat that up front. Does a photograph pre-injury approve parental acceptance of a cosmetic result? Again, that's tying over into some surgical subspecialty colleagues and other colleagues that I would defer to, but I do wanna hear what your thoughts and impressions are on that. Next slide. This is a list of the major um, entities that I covered today. So links to documents and their headers. And again, we're more than happy to share this information, whether it's something that you would like to post and put out to your patients, whether it's something you would like to have available for your own practice or how we as an institution can participate in this going forward. Next slide. And at this time, I'm ready for your questions. Thank you, uh, Michelle, for an outstanding presentation. Uh, we, I, I certainly learned a lot and appreciate your, your expertise in this area, which has been uh, incredibly useful during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so uh, I think we brought the right person, and so thank you. We have, uh, we've had about 160 people that logged into the, uh, to the Grand Round, so very popular. Uh, we have a comment. Um, it's not really a question, but a comment, and so supporting what you said. When my kids were younger, we went through ready.gov and it was well received. Every kid made a kid for home and a poster which was displayed at the library for a month. Uh, they did a great job and had a good time. Plus they earned uh, appropriate scout badges or pins. Kids will do almost anything for a patch. Uh -huh. so, additional comments we're uh, doing at home and, and this uh, site ready.gov. Uh, you can just comment on that, uh, Michelle. Sure. Uh, I, I lost audio for a second there. Uh, I really want to like thank whoever wrote that in. Ready.gov has so many tools. And you're right, giving a child a reward is often proper motivation, whether it's a badge for scouts or a public display of their work. But it, it's also a very nice way to help engage the whole family in a group project and work together. Do you make it a scavenger hunt? And everybody, you know, you have already pre-designated all the supplies and they're in the home, but your children have to find them and put them into the appropriate connection. So ready.gov gives a lot of information. One thing in particular that I like about that website is, is that I feel that they have done a very good job of being um, more representative of our general population. So when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, they've been doing that for some time. And I really like how they put that in for us. Thanks, and, and I, uh, I guess a, a comment. And uh, can you can you comment on on preparedness fatigue, <clears throat> if you may? You know, we have been sort of in a in a disaster mode for about a year now. And and how do you how do you stay connected? How do you still be? You know, how are you how do you get prepared to be for a disaster on, on top of a disaster, if you may, as we've experienced, you know, through the COVID nineteen crisis? Sure. Thanks, Juan. So one method that we employed here that I think is very helpful is that we seem to be able to do a very nice job of breaking it into phases. So certainly when I first arrived and there's a room with maybe 80 of us and we're, we're all working on a common goal. And while at an institutional level, most people in that room knew what incident command was, knew how to function, and we had a, a well-defined goal at hand. But then we got to a point where we said, okay, our team has been doing this well enough. We need to do a reset. How are we going to do reset for ourselves and a reset for this system so that we don't get fatigued? We've got to define what the new goals are. They're not all different deliverables, but even just putting a different title on it, giving people a break is very important. I know that many of us have felt the need that, well, I can't really travel, so I don't know if I'm going to take vacation. But getting that time away is so important important for personal care so that you're able to come back to your job or your work area and feel re-engaged, feel motivated for the process 
and keep things moving along. The other area that I like to see us do is getting feedback and input from all of our colleagues on a process and revisiting how did that process work. So renaming it, taking time off. And then I, I would like to touch one more time on personal health and mental health, both for yourselves and for your colleagues that we all need to keep a lookout for each other. Who needs a break? Who needs to be able to step away for a moment? And who would then be able to be further re-engaged when they've been able to get that rest and personal care that they need? Great, thanks. Uh, John, if you're still on the, I think you're still on the line, I'm gonna pass it back to you for additional comments, questions, and then we'll go ahead and, uh, and close the session. John? Uh, I think that was a beautifully done presentation. Thank you, Michelle. Um, Thank you. There's, there's so much um, that we all need to keep in mind. And uh, the whole thing about disaster uh, preparedness is, is thinking about it way before um, it's needed. So thank you. Thank you, appreciate it. All right, thank you everyone. Um, oh, actually there's a question in here. I came up with it. Uh, here's another question and um, we'll have, we still have time. So would it make sense to photograph a unique identifier birthmark if present an abductor may be able to change appearance? So uh, that's a very interesting question. Michelle? Yes, so those physical identifiers are very important. Um, of course, when you're taking that photograph, being able to say where it is, putting a, a measurement into it would be helpful as well. But certainly anything that's a unique identifier for your child would be important. There's all kinds of other science and data that's been looked at as well. You know, John Park and I were talking about, well, what about retinas? Well, we, I think we need something a little more simplistic. Um, certainly when we look at things like curvature of the ear, that is also one way that's very specific to you know, your child. It's almost like a fingerprint, just a lot easier to obtain. But I, I do think that looking at those very specific identifiers for your child and having a photo record of that could be very helpful. Great, thanks. Um, all right, very good. Unless, uh, I guess another question came through. Um, as, uh, as Dr. McKee mentioned, we use IQ in the ED often. If we're getting um, if we're getting the ID photo, is there a specific consent form we must obtain or verbal consent from the patient or parent is enough? Thank you. So verbal consent is enough. Uh, I talked with both the people who deployed this functionality and Michelle Cross and Risk. And because it's part of our identification of the patient and we are not using it for any other purpose, just talk to them beforehand. Verbal consent is more than adequate and you don't need a separate signed consent other than their general consent for treatment. Excellent, thank you. I think that that's it for questions. So Michelle and John, thank you very much um, for the grand rounds, uh, truly outstanding. And this is recorded, make sure you fill in your, your CME MOC credit. Uh, again, thank you to uh, our team, Steve, Nicole and Liz for allowing us to host this uh, virtually. Uh, so the snow will not stop us. In the past, we might've had to cancel it. We'll see you again on Friday for the Ask the Expert session and then uh, next Tuesday again for going around. So stay warm, be safe, wear your mask, get vaccinated. Take care, bye-bye.